Episode 46 of the Tactical Breakdown Podcast. Today we're talking about undercover operations with one of the best to ever do it. Here we go. Welcome to the Tactical Breakdown. A podcast for law enforcement, military, and emergency response professionals. Stand by. Where we help you bridge the gap and talk training, tactics, and leadership with the best subject matter experts in the world. Here is your host, Adam Kanakin. All right, welcome back to the Tactical Breakdown Podcast. This is another episode that I did and is an aside from the International Law Enforcement Training Summit. This is another guest that was on the summit. If you had the opportunity to listen to his session, uh, you know exactly what to expect from this gentleman. Mr. Jack Garcia, former special agent with the Federal Bureau of Investigation, specializing in undercover work. He's pretty much spent his entire career undercover fascinating stories and this was just a great conversation that i had with him and it was really cool and i hope you really enjoy it and get some information out of it and um, if you haven't already subscribed to the podcast make sure to do so we have so many things coming down the pipe for the rest of 2020 and moving into 2021 Um, we're going to be doing some major announcements coming up here right away as well so uh, make sure to subscribe. You're going to get all those announcements and you're going to get just continual content from the best law enforcement instructors and experts in the world. And uh, it's my honor to always bring that to you each and every week. So without any further ado, let's jump into this conversation I had with Mr. Jack Garcia. Here we go. All right. On the phone with me today, I have Jack Garcia. Jack, thank you so much for joining me, man. It's an honor to have you on the show. Likewise. Thank you for having me, Adam. Really appreciate it. Now, you and I got in touch over LinkedIn and it was kind of, it was really interesting. We just kind of found each other and started talking, jumped on a couple phone calls and hit it off. And here we are. You have spent your, almost your entire career uh, with the FBI in undercover roles and investigations. So where does, there's so many places we could start. Why don't we start with where, if you were to pick one of the cases that you think was the most difficult for you pick whichever however you want to define difficult for you what case stands out to you as being the most difficult one that you had when you were with the FBI well that's a great question um Adam in as much as that 24 out of my 26 years and the FBI was solely dedicated to uh, working undercover and uh, I've worked because I speak Spanish fluently most of my expertise came in working narcotics I played the role of a money launderer a transporter, a trafficker, a dope dealer, and on and on. And of course, I've done murder for hires, political and police corruption cases, Asian organized crime, Russian organized crime. So all of them have their own little bit of interest for me. And it was kind of challenging some until someone came up to me on a case that I had worked with the Russians and said, listen, we're going to be infiltrating the um, a crime family, an organized crime family in New York. And I think we can have you pass off as an Italian. Now, I was born in Havana, Cuba. I came to this country when I was nine years old. I eat rice and beans. Uh, my culture is totally Hispanic. And uh, I found that to be a challenge. And I said, well, I don't know if I could pull it off. But fortunately, the agent who was working the case, a case agent named Nat Parisi, who was himself an Italian, he says, look, I think 
we can get you there. And I think you could pass off as one. So we created an identity for me along with one that made me half Italian and half Cuban. And instead, when I got into it with uh, the Gambino crime family, they bought my act and they bought that I was a third generation Italian American. So to me, as far as what was challenging, that was it to pose as an Italian, even though my roots and my culture and my life, we heard, is, is being that of being a Cuban. Now, for officers and for people that are listening to this, they hear Gambino crime family, and it doesn't matter if you're in anywhere in the U.S. or up here in Canada, you know, you don't have to be from New York to, to recognize that name. That sounds like a pretty massive type of career style case. What exactly was involved with, with, that, uh, with that undercover operation? If well, you- it, it, right. Organized crime, um, usually, or the mafia is supposed to be a secret criminal society that exists to commit crime, murder, and mayhem. Uh, in the New York area, as small as it is, there are really seven families that operate in the area. You have your traditional five families, which is the Gambino, Genovese, Columbos, Bonanos, and Lucchese. Those are the five largest group. But outside of them, you have the Philadelphia crime family that operates in northern New Jersey. And then you also have the the Cavalcanti family, or the Elizabeth crew as they're known, which is a model for the Sopranos. So you got all of these gangsters all in the area, all vying for the same thing, and as to get some money illegally and shake down people and bookmaking and loan sharking and your standard on. So the Gambino crime family happened to, at the time that I was on there, one of the most powerful, if not the most powerful families out of all the crime families in the U.S., which they're saying to be about 30 plus of them. So the Gambinos were good. We were neck to neck sometimes with the Genovese that went with the West, known as the West Side. And they were a powerful group that controlled labor racketeering. They controlled construction rackets. They controlled the courthouse uh, uh, corrupt judges. And what made the uh, Gambino crime family and organized crime or Cosa Nostra, as they like to call it, is that there is no other criminal organization in the history of our country that's ever infiltrated these institution in our, in our society, which include, as I said, political institutions, labor unions, police department, judges, construction, This is the way the mafia has been able to do. And I think that's what sets them apart. And that's why Hollywood romanticizes them. And that's why everybody loves to watch The Sopranos and all these gangster movies is because unlike any other criminal group, they're the only ones who really infiltrated. The Crips haven't, the Colombians haven't, the uh, Bloods haven't. Yes, the Colombians have infiltrated in their country. But here in America, This is what's been going on since the early 30s. So they do have a strong foothold in a lot of legitimate and illegitimate enterprise. And they're a very powerful group that uh, still, although have changed dramatically in their thinking and the way of operating, uh, uh, the way they operate, it's still very viable in New York. 
And in my theory, it's going to get even larger because in the FBI itself, it's no longer an investigative priority. We're looking at terrorism, white collar crime, corruption. We're looking at Russian interference. So what's happened is we don't have the manpower to dedicate to work in organized crime. So what are they doing? They're doing what they do best. They're crawling underneath the rocks. They're getting bigger and stronger. And I would say within the next five or 10 years, you're going to see a resurgence of organized crime simply because we don't have the manpower to target them today. So they're growing, they're learning from their mistakes, but they still are pursuing their traditional work, which is bookmaking, sports betting, loan sharking, extortion, and all of the other crimes associated with uh, organized crime. From an officer perspective, when you have to build out these cases and build out, you know, how are we going to infiltrate and all those types of things, there must be a lot more considerations that have to be made when you talk about, like you said, the amount of infiltration that they had into uh, the political parties and the political systems and, and everything that it must make it a lot more difficult to create an undercover identity or to have somebody go in undercover because the risk of exposure is so much greater. Is, am I right with that? Well, yes, but also keep in mind that, Undercover investigations or an undercover scenario is nothing more than investigative technique. It's no difference than surveilling the gangsters, going up on wiretaps with the gangs. The only difference is that you have to find the right individual who is capable of going undercover in organized crime. They are a very distrustful group of individuals. So how do you do that? Is you have to get a very strong uh, cooperating witness informant who is going to make a very big vouch, and you're going to have an agent who is qualified, who is a street type of guy. One of the things that I see, and I used to teach in the Undercover FBI Academy, is that you think that, hey, you know, that's interesting working undercover. But a person is not going to learn anything in undercover at school. And by that, I mean is you can't make an undercover. Undercover are individuals that are born that way. And by that, I mean people who are quit thinking, uh, people who are able to hang around and socialize with all types of uh, individuals, people who are flexible, people who are tolerant. It takes a special breed of individual to say, hey, I'm going to be pursuing undercover. It's not like you could take someone and say, I want to become a police officer or an FBI, and I'm going to teach you how to shoot. You can't teach these skills. These are skills that you learn as you're growing up. I grew up in the streets of New York. I grew up in the Bronx, okay? In the Bronx, you were either became a cop or you were chased by a cop. So you knew the lingo. You knew the way things work. So it's something that all of us, you know, uh, some of us have that are feeling comfortable to be around this guy, to be placed in an undercover uh, situation. And you want to make sure if you have an undercover program or if you have an undercover uh, situation where you're going to infiltrate someone, that that person is the right person and that that person is going to go home safe at night and that that person is not going to get him or her hurt or get others hurt. And 
the idea of like uh, years ago when the Silence of the Lamb movie came out, everybody would call the FBI and want to go into that behavioral science unit. You know, it doesn't work that way. You don't see Donnie Brasco on television or a show about undercovers and say, I want to become an undercover agent. You have to be put through a series of tests. You have to go through the undercover school and you could wash out in which they see that you're not that type of individual who can handle that pressure or who can feel comfortable and give yourself up where it's going to be a situation that you're going to get yourself hurt or killed. So undercover work, it, it, you know, people say, yeah, let's go undercover. It, it should take some time. It should take some planning. It should definitely involve, not because somebody raises their hand and say, I want to work undercover. Put that person through some kind of testing. Put that person some kind of schooling. And also give it some time. Because once you're in there, you're alone. There's nobody backing you up. When you're working undercover, yeah, you may have your team outside. But if something hits the fan, I said, what is that team going to do? They're just going to come in and put the yellow tape because you're dead. No one's there to help you. So don't let people, uh, like people, if you're on, on the job and say, you know what, I want to go working undercover. Undercover is not for everybody. And trust me, from a guy who did 24 years and on, it isn't the best thing that you could do. It isn't one that's going to get you promoted. It's not the one that's going to go out there and make it. Sometimes even your own treat you like you're an informant. Many a times when I've been working undercover, when I would go into work a new case, I would meet someone and they would start talking to me as I was, I was an undercover. I want you to do this. I want you to do that. Hey, wait a minute, pal. I got the same badge you got. You don't want me to do anything. You asked me to do it. You asked my opinion. I'll tell you the parameters. I'll tell you whether I'm capable of doing that. I am not an informant. I'm not working off a beat. So again, it takes an individual, a certain type of individual to work on the cover. This is a job that's not for everybody. In law enforcement, we have the great uh, agents and police officers who are great in surveillance in writing Title III applications and individuals who are great search warrants and great making arrests, great interviewers. Well, then you have to find those who are great working undercover and it's not something you learn. You are born in undercover, period. We have a similar friend um, and uh, by the name of Jay Dobbins, who I had on the show, and I know you were actually on his show, Copland, in episode two, I believe it was. And all the same things that you're saying was kind of what I felt when, when speaking with him. It's, it's, it's more of something that you either have the, the personality to do the undercover work or you don't. And it's not something that can be forced. I mean, there are things that you can learn from it or learn, but it's, it's more about the personality and the person than it is what can, you can't really, you know, train somebody up into that role. So, I mean, now we have multiple people saying the same thing. And if, if, you're an officer. And if there's an officer listening to this and they're like, you know what? I think I'm that kind of person. What are some from, from somebody who has 24 years of undercover experience, what are some things, if somebody's thinking about getting into undercover work, what would you say? Like, Hey, this is what you need to look out for. Or, you know, this is why you should, or this is why you shouldn't do it. Well, that, uh, another great question. Okay. First of all, I respect Jay Dobbins. He, he is the man. He's a friend. He's a brother. Uh, amazing individual. Um, as far as police departments, not all police departments 
have room for this investigative technique known as undercover work. Now, of course, the larger you are, you can get people to go make buys, people to go buy some dope, prostitution, whatever the case may be. If a person feels that they are ready, I say they should contact, and every police department should have somebody who is the undercover coordinator. They need to have somebody who is aware of cases that are going on in the particular department. They are in touch with certain people. And let this person make that decision whether you should move to the next level. And by the next level is, you may want to do is put the person to ghost another undercover agent. Like maybe the person is going to make a buy. The person needs to be down the block posing as a homeless guy or something where, and see what how, kind of reaction, how that person handles themselves. You know, one of the things that I did is I prepare for every undercover case and I, and I pass that on as wisdom, hopefully to any undercover uh, agents that are out there or police officers. Before I took on a job, I wanted to meet with the informant who was going to make that introduction. I wanted to assess that individual because if I assess that individual to be a jerk off, I will be a jerk off just by being with that person. So I needed to find out what is that person's status in that criminal group. You know, a person who's a jerk off is going to, and your target is the person above that. How do you think that person views him? He views him as somebody like, okay, this guy is a jerk off. The guy with him has got to be a bigger jerk off. So those are things that, that I would do. Then I would sit down and talk to particular either informants or talk to seasoned agents who have been working organized crime for a long period of time. And I wanted to hear the stories that they've heard. And those stories became my stories. So when I was out there, and I was out there in the street, and I was posing as a knock-around guy, a guy who was in the streets. I had stories that I could throw out. Now, grant you, not mine, but it's kind of what I expected. So it was a learning process that I wanted to be prepared. I wanted to know as much as I knew, but not too much of personal information regarding the target. You don't want to go out there and sleep and, and slip and say something stupid. I went even as far as depending on the individual's after consulting the case agent, what kind of target I would be infiltrating to find out, well, how are they to strangers? How did they behave to somebody new? How did they do? And how much really checking they do on you? So I had to make sure that my background was airtight. And when I went with the mob, not only was the Bureau provided me with great background, background information, but I even went the extra yard. And what I did was I, I posed my, my storyline was I was going to be a guy from Florida. I was going to be a third generation Italian guy. I was involved in the drug trade. I was a mover and a shaker, you know? So what I did was I went to Florida and I looked for cemetery plots for a Mr. and Mrs. Falcone because that was going to be my name. And it became Jack Falcone. Now, you say, why did you do that? Let's say I'm down in Florida with these guys sitting around enjoying the fun, the sun, and all of that. One of those guys, maybe he doesn't trust me, or maybe he's genuine, and he says, hey, Jack, you're from this area, right? I know your parents are dead. Let's go pay him a visit at the cemetery, drop some flowers. What are you going to do? 
So of course, you got to go that extra yard. I found a Mr. and Mrs. Jack Falcone. I never had to use them, but if I did, there they were. I would have taken them there. I would have put flowers on that grave. I would have blessed myself and said a prayer, and then would have left. The only concern that I had that any relative of that Falcone was not going to be there at the same time I would have been there. Mm-hmm. But these are the little extra things that you have to be prepared because it works. I had to make sure when I was out there not to say crazy things like I was in prison because all mob guys do prison. They all do a nickel and a dime. They go out there five years. It's like a spa. They meet other gangsters. They talking to this guy. They talking to that guy, another family. Next thing you know, on the streets, they're working together. Now, if I would go in and say, yeah, I was in Lewisburg. I did three years for hijacking. Oh, really? When were you there? I was there in 1995. Well, that's funny because Joey Potts and Pants and Vinnie Bag of Donuts were there. So you know them, right? What, what are you going to do then? So is when you bullshit when you're an undercover, you can only bullshit so far. And you got to keep in mind that these guys are criminals and they are distrustful in nature. And everything you say, you better be able to back it up because if not, it sits in their mind, in their craw. And one day they're going to come back with that and say, wait a minute, I remember this guy told me this. So I know that undercover is acting. I know undercover is lying, that you're posing as somebody who you're not. But you got to have control of that story. Because if it goes out too far, you're going to get caught. So undercover work, if you're doing long term, which is part of one of the undercovers, or if you're doing short term, if you're doing short terms, you know, how, how is it? Like if you're buying dope from somebody, how do they normally buy dope? Who's bringing me in? What do I say? What should I say? You know, is don't think like a cop when you're out there. You got to think like a street thug because that's the role you're playing. But at the same time, you got to try to gather the evidence. I worked many a case, especially with Russians, and I've had case agents, which are guys who control the case, and they would say to you, I want you to go in and I need you to say this, this, and that. And I said, listen, I can't say this, this, and that unless the opportunity presents itself. And I said, if I could take that opening, I will take it. But I can't say it because it's not, it's going to stand out. So how I argued with that was I would always tell these case agents, I, I would come back and maybe I'd got two out of the three things or maybe one out of six things. And I say, I only got that. He goes, what about the others? He goes, that's why God invented tomorrow. I, ha- I couldn't do it. You don't want to push the envelope. You have to be able to say, is, you, and it works both ways. The case agent or the case officer has to understand the undercover. We're not magicians. We're not individuals who can get all of that. We're new people in this criminal enterprise. We have to earn these people's trust. We can't put ourselves in the spotlight. We have to massage it slowly, work its way to the top, and that's how you have all your success. And that's how I found that I've done it, is don't rush to come back and say, I have the Eureka tape. Because sometimes you getting in pursuit of that Eureka tape is going to get you blown away. So I have to make sure that as much effort as they go looking for you as an undercover, I got to the point where I turned down undercover cases. 
not because the work was difficult or the work was uh, scary. No, none of that. I turned it down because I knew the person who was running the case was a jerk off. I wasn't going to work for that person because I knew that person would go out there and he was just more concerned about his or her promotion and his or her advancement than it was my life. So you just say, hey, thanks. It's not for me. Appreciate it. Have a nice day. Now, you know, but I was fortunate in my career that I was always offered cases to work based on referrals because of some of the work that I've done. The same thing for these other legendary undercover guys like Jay Dobbins, Encephalo, and, and goes on and on. You get these recommendations. So you get put in a place where you don't have to take on the noise and all of that toxic thing and, and pressure. You, you want to go as an undercover feeling supported. You want to be undercover that, hey, if you don't get it today, there's always tomorrow that, hey, that person's going to watch your back so you can come home to your wife and kids. And that's the most important part is you want to come home to your family. This is a job, okay? It is not where if you take down the mother load of kilos that the drug uh, narcotic trafficking is going to stop. They're going to be out the next day selling dope, but you're not because you're going to be six feet on the ground. So that is something you have to say is all the time is you got to make sure safety and security is paramount to any investigation, any investigation. They, I don't care how urgent it is. I don't care how important it is your safety and security because that, that's kind of what it's all about. And, and, you know, it's an investigative technique and you go at it, you give it your best shot. And, it, you know, it's something that, I mean, I loved undercover work. I always thought I felt comfortable doing. It took me a while to get really comfortable. I knew when the person was a little worried, I knew not. I also believed in wearing a recorder. I'm a person who believes that if you have a recorder on, it's the information, the recordings, uh, these cases make them indefensible, okay? It's where the, the, the evidence is uh, indisputable. I mean, there is the bad guy talking to you about a criminal act that he or she did, was doing, or was about to commit. So I believed in carrying that. Now, I also didn't believe then that nobody puts their hand on me to check for that. And I was fortunately in my career, nobody ever patted me down. Okay. And the reason for that, I've always said that it, when you start to wonder whether you can trust someone or not, if that bad guy starts to wonder that, okay, that is when you already know that you don't. So if that person tap wants to search you and you're not wearing a recorder, and that person taps you and doesn't find anything. Do you think the minute he stops finding it that he's going to trust you? He's not going to trust you because he, you did. He did that to you because he doesn't trust the way you talk, the way you walk, the way you're carrying yourself. He did that for a reason. But, hey, you know what? we got to be ahead of the game. You go into situations, like I said, slowly, methodically, to get that person's trust, not to panic them. You can't go in the first time and, and start talking stupid because that's just going to hink them up. So one of the things I believe is, and I wore a recorder all throughout my mob investigation, I wore it because I wanted to capture that. The days of the law enforcement officer getting to understand and having the jurors look at us and say, wow, this is great, man. This guy 
you know, what a, what a law enforcement officer are gone, okay? Now it becomes my word against his word. But if you got that tape, that neutralizes. There's no more my word or his word. It's on the tape. So the days you think that you're going to stand up there in your crispy uniform and they're going to believe you, trust me, they're not going to believe you. So you need to have the evidence to make sure that that stuff, that stuff that puts that person away. And I'm a believer in always recording the conversations. And very few times in my career did I not wear it. And I had to go back when I did wear it and try to recapture what was said, because if it isn't on tape, it didn't happen. There's so much information there, but it sounds like one of the things that you were saying is rushing the investigation is kind of where the biggest mistakes happen. And, and that's when the, the worst things happen. Is that right? That is correct. For people that are getting into this, for officers that are getting into the undercover work, or maybe they're, they work for a gang unit and they're doing buys or whatever it is. I mean, short, short, like you said, like a one day kind of op, maybe a little bit different. But as soon as you start extending these cases where it's a week, a month, a year, two years and beyond, it really feels like the longer the case is going to go, you really have to pre-plan your backstory and making sure that, you know, you're thinking from their perspective, like, what could they possibly ask me? And do I have an answer for that? Because if you don't and you lie, that's going to put you at, you know, in, in the most risk. Is that right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And the police officers, I have done small buys because I've been involved in the FBI narcotics when the FBI first started back in the early 80s when we started working narcotics. So I've made those small buys until finally when I was dealing with cell leaders and cartel guys and all of that other stuff that we in, in law enforcement in the federal level kind of deals when you're dealing with undercover. And I find it the most difficult job, okay? And I've always said this, the most difficult job, not just necessarily in undercover work, but also in just plain uh, working the streets, is your police officer, okay? The police officer, when he pulls somebody over, they don't know what that person's propensity for violence. They don't know that person's background. They just did a traffic stop. What if it's a Joanne Chesimard in there? What if it's some other killer or shooter that just decides to take? They, where the FBI and federal law enforcement, we know who we're stopping the majority of the time. We know everything about that person, what time they get up in the morning, what time they go to sleep at night. We know all of their criminal history, so we come prepared. Now, on the undercover side, these police officers are working, and especially the NYPD, and I'm sure all the major cities that I work, when we, and even when I started, you start off small, you're buying, you know, eight balls, you're buying grams, and you're working up your, it's a place where the possibility you're going to get ripped for your money, the possibility you're going to get hurt for this, and they're going to be paranoid because they're all think that they're jailhouse lawyers. They really believe that when they ask you, are you a police officer, and you say no, then that's okay for them because you deny being a cop, and even though you got arrested. I mean, it's warped logic that they exist in the, working in the street, and that is a very tough job for these guys, and these NYPD guys, and, and I'm sure Chicago and all the big cities, and even in the small cities, when you're buying small amount, that means pretty much you're buying from a user. If you're dealing with the user, that person is a paranoid and that person 
you got to be very careful who you're dealing with. I dealt with guys who were 80 years old, right, that brought in tons of cocaine, okay? They were businessmen. None of the guys that I dealt with in the higher level ever used the stuff. Not a single one. It was strictly business for them. But when I was working buying minor stuff, majority of the guys were users. So you're dealing with a different element when you're working on the cover. And that's what I mean is you have to not only listen to what others around you, the other police officers about the buy you're going to make about the particular subject, but you're really responsible for yourself because when you're on the cover, it's just you. You just got all this information and you got to make that call. And you got to make sure, like I said over, is that you want to go home to your family. And if you don't buy and if you go into the basement when you're told, do not under any circumstance make a buy anywhere else but in this spot, then you know what? That's where you make it. If you read my book, I recount the story. When I met with these individuals, I started growing numbers of these Colombian guys, these uh, gangbangers from uh, New York. Everybody had a story. Everybody was coming up with a story. And then one guy says, why don't we go to the house right up the block? Everything is nice there. I got, we could sit down, count the money, and count all the dope and be nice, nice. Well, I didn't. Because that training stuck into me. I'm not leaving. Why? Because I knew my guys were all surrounded themselves in the diner. They were uh, looking out the window in the diner. They were in the parking lot. And they observed us. So what I did was, I said, listen. And they were pushing. I said, I have to call my madrina. And that's all part of Santeria. And they understood that. Because when I did undercover, I would wear all the beads like I was a Santero. You know, like part of the Santeria. So I get on the phone and I call, of course, the team. And they said, listen, there are cars here with guys. We've seen them loading up. We're taking this down. We wound up taking nine guys down. Okay. We took tech nines. We took uh, tape. We took rope. We took revolvers. We took nine millimeters, 40 millimeters. They planned. And when they cooperated, they said that they were looking to get me and my money and to get the bad guy, the Colombian's dope, to do it. So obviously, if I was young and a guy out there who was pursuing the kilo ferry of like, oh, the mother load is over there, I might have gone to that house, but I would not be here today talking to you. So you have to realize this is it. This is what you got to play and understand that I had a team of guys and gals that protected my ass, and they were watching me, and I knew that, and I was not about to leave that in pursuit of the Kilo Ferry because this is reality where I was at. That's a fantastic training point for anybody listening to this is that, you know, you have, you have plans in place for a reason. And if, if something's going sideways, I mean, like you're saying, you have to put yourself first and your safety first and going home to your family because there's, it's not like, it's not like crime's going to go away after you make that bust right? Or after you make that case, it's going to be there the next day and the next day. So, you know, it doesn't make sense to put yourself in harm's way for no reason. Absolutely. Absolutely. Really, really interesting too. And this is something that kind of popped into my head as we were talking here um, from a training perspective and, and for officers that are on the street. My understanding is that for a lot of these large infiltration type cases, um, the CIs that you develop and actually bring you in are kind of 
they're, they're super important. They can make or break the case for you. As you had said, like, I mean, and you, you kind of vet the CI before you would even work with them. If, how do you, can we talk about cultivating a CI and how, how that works and the best way to do it and things to avoid? Right. Well, one of the things, Adam, is let's face it, in law enforcement, there is no um, Dick Tracy, excellent uh, police officer. The guy could solve any crime. We are as good as our sources in the street, period. All your great detectives, all your great police officers, they know who to go to for what and how to get information. That is our bread and butter. Without law and without informants and snitches, whatever you want to call them, we have nothing. We have nothing. That's not the world we live in. We don't live in the criminal world. We're not hearing this. So informants are very, very important. However, you never trust a source, okay? Just like they're selling their friends, they would sell you up the river for absolutely no difference. Okay, so every time you speak to a source, I always spoke to a source and I said, this guy is taping me. You have to assume you can't buddy buddy with these guys. Yes, you can let them think you're out there and you're working this case and all, but they have an agenda and you have, but they are our bread and butter. And how I do is, and we've done so many cases of buy bus because that's how we get the sources. You get a guy, he delivers a kilo, boom, you lock him up. You say to them, okay, this is your chance. Now, you're going to tell me where you got that dope, and you're going to call up, and you're going to bring a guy with you to make a buy. Now, I've gone with these guys who I just met, who I just arrested, looking for his supplier to come out with more dope so I can lock him up as well. Now, those are dangerous situations because you really haven't vetted this guy 100%. Yeah, he cried. Yeah, he was sad. Yeah, he's going to miss his family. Yeah, I'll do anything for you. But how do you know that? I mean, he is a criminal. So what you have to, that, but that happens again, all right? This happens again to the new officers when they're dealing with people on the street. A guy buys an eight ball. He flips. He says, can you get me an ounce? And then he goes with this guy. You don't know anything about this guy. So it is a dangerous thing, but they are our life and butter to get this. Fortunately, as years went on, and the FBI started more dealing with the larger cartels and all of that. The informants that we had were indeed vetted. These were individuals that were either doing it for whatever reason that they have to get a, a visa to come into America for their family. Some of them, of course, for money. They were nothing for mercenaries. Others because they, you know, they saw God and they thought that maybe this is their way. And of course, there's a lot of vindictive nature. But no matter what story they told you as to why they flipped, I didn't believe it. I didn't trust them. As far as I'm concerned, this guy is bringing me somewhere, but I'm keeping an eye on him too. Because that's just, a, but it's something that we need and to develop. So when you get sources, I know sometimes the situations are fluid. When you're catching a guy and he flips, gets you another one. But you can't drop your guard and you, especially the team that backs you up, has to be aware of that. Don't go for that, uh, you know, the, the golden uh, uh, ticket. Don't go because you're going to go score some bigger, more dope. Keep an eye on this guy because what do you know of this guy? You know, what if he's setting you up into a situation? 
You know, so, so yes, informants, I think, are the most important thing. If you want to develop any police department, you want to develop an intelligence base, which is what happened to me in Philly. When I was assigned to the drug squad in Philly, we had just gotten into uh, narcotics. So because I speak Spanish, I was out there along with a lot of agents working, developing who's who, who handles this drug point, who handles that street, where is the dope coming from? Is it from Cali? Is it from Medellin? Where is all this stuff coming? You need to have that intelligence in advance. You can't just say a guy flips out to you and he says, yeah, I got this from Jose who got it from Jose B. And now you're on this deal. But what do you know about Jose and Jose B? What do you know about these guys? So it's important that everybody come together and you're coming together not for the case. If you bring in an undercover, you're coming for the undercover. Your job is to make sure that that undercover goes home safe and sound to his family. The hell with the gram, the hell with the, the, uh, the, the eight ball, the hell with the kilo. It means absolutely nothing. You ensure that this guy is protected. But like I said, on the informant side, we can't operate without them. They're, they're either cooperators, and in the FBI, we have those who choose to wear recordings and make recordings and introductions and are going to testify, okay? Or you have those that just provide intelligence, that do not want to testify. I always was in favor of those willing to testify. But then you got to keep an eye on them, too, because as it's getting near the end, and this happened to me on several cases, when fortunately one time I was myself and another uh, undercover who rose to the rank of assistant director in the FBI, Diego Rodriguez, we were dealing with this source, everything went well, and next thing you know, the source, the bad guy calls us over, and he says, I just want to tell you, you know this source that you, uh, this girl rather that you uh, brought you guys in? I go, yeah, he goes, she said you guys are FBI. And then the guy, and I look at Diego and he looks at me, and then the guy starts to laugh. He said, do you believe it? This stupid person thought you guys are the FBI, and we start laughing. So we got back to the office, pulled her in, polygraphed her ass, and she failed. So why did she do that? She did that because she knew that the end was near. So all the, in other words, all her pay that she was getting on a regular monthly basis, all her perk, I'm sure all the side dealing that she was doing. So again, getting back to what I originally said, you got to keep an eye on these sources because these guys will double dip all day long and will set you up for what we call el tumbe. El tumbe is when they a rip off. And I've also been in situations when guys were coming up and fortunate that my backup team was fully SWAT guys who came in and locked up these guys who were going to come into location where we had over $3 million on a money laundering operation. So those guys, you have to never drop that. These, these guys are not your friends. Their informants are not your friends. Just your friends are the same people with, who wear the same badge you have. That's your real friends. These other guys are just looking for some kind of angle. I'm sorry, Adam. I go off on these tangents. No, I love it. I love it. I'm, I'm just sitting here just eating it all up. 
Um, I love this stuff. And, and I mean, you have so much experience and that's why it's, it's really interesting to, to kind of hear it right from the horse's mouth. I mean, there's a lot of people, even in law enforcement that, you know, there's so much out there right now on the internet, whether it be on YouTube or on Netflix or in movies or on TV. And you see all of these different types of things that are happening. And yes, obviously the, they're getting smarter. They're starting to put more realistic um, spins on things. And, and actually, you know, when you see certain movies, um, you know, it's, they're making them to uh, more appease, I guess, law enforcement and military personnel, right. Um, To make sure that things are more factually correct and tactically correct. But at the end of the day, all of the trade craft, I guess you would call it that you just spoke to that never sees the light of day, unless you have somebody who's been through it to train the next group of undercover officers, that's, that's where that tradecraft gets passed along. And it's interesting. Um, I wonder, is there, um, I mean, obviously the FBI and all the, the other agencies, so DEA, ATF, there's undercover operations being run all the time. Are well, there? Yeah, the undercover has become a very, very popular technique. Okay, and I think a lot has to do with a fact, just like in organized crime, a lot of guys are cooperating. You know, I think it, it, it happens to um, uh, the day, I guess, that, you know, uh, thanks to Rico, the fear of the law outweighs the power of the mob or the criminal enterprise, you know, because people know they're going to get banged for 30 years, 40 years on a Rico statute, 20 years for a crime. So you're getting a lot of guys to join Team America and want to cooperate and get that. So, yes, there's a lot more undercover work because you really, and what happens too, and especially in the FBI, because I, I witnessed this, you know, kind of a first hand. When I first got in the FBI, which was the beginning of 1980, right, the FBI by no means mirrored the demographic in our society. Everybody looked like an FBI agent, three-piece suits, wingtip shoes, as they called them, a thousand eyes. You know, that's the way it was. So now you're getting law enforcement, you're having all of the different ethnic groups that are coming in there, uh, and these guys are amazing. But one thing I do want to caution, and that happened to me too, I was working a case, a money laundering case in New York, and I worked in a task force with probably the best NYPD detectives. These were, uh, it was an FBI NYPD task force. And we were working this case where we had to do money pickups. And one of the guys, an agent, said, look, I need a guy to help me with this, with this um, duffel bags. They're huge. They weigh a ton, you know. And I'm supposed to be the boss. I'm supposed to have guys who, who work for me. So somebody goes, hey, why don't you have Fernando help you? And I looked at the guy. He says, are you kidding me? Fernando looks like Urkel. How are you going to have him doing it? Just because he goes, yeah, but he speaks Spanish. So what does that mean? You're white, so you can infiltrate the, the Cosa Nostra? I said, not everybody is because you're a particular ethnic group, whether you are, you know, Asian, Hispanic, Muslim, whatever the case may be, that you automatically would be an undercover. Again, we get back to the original thing that I said was that you got to be born with this, you know, not because you are Hispanic, you assume you could play a drug dealer. No, because not every white guy could play a gangster. So the same rules kind of apply that finding the undercover that's perfect. And if you find somebody, you got to ride that person, but ride the person only 
as well as that person is safe. The thing with me is I was very noticeable. I'm a big guy. I'm 6'4", weigh almost 400 pounds. I had long hair, earrings, you name it. I had goatee. I looked like a bad guy. I walked the walk, talked the talk. Nobody believed I was an agent, okay? But that's like a double-edged sword because if a guy suspects that I'm wearing a recorder or if he sees me with a recorder, okay, he's going to say, well, this guy, and, if, and he goes to kill me, and he said, you're a freaking rat. And he says, no, I'm an FBI agent. I got my guys outside. We're going to go to jail forever if you freaking do anything. Do you think he's going to believe that I'm an FBI agent, a law enforcement? No. So as big as I was, it was a double edge. But on these uh, operations that you go on, I was luckily working these Colombian cartels, and they are very compartmentalized. So when you arrest Hose A and he gives up Hose B, that's all he's got. Hose B may not know, and Hose B may be scared because his family in Colombia, and he delivered the dope, they are aware that if he cooperates, he's done. So working with the Colombians, a guy my side was still able to be okay. But having worked the mob, there's no way that I could ever attempt to do that. Although, yeah, there are big guys in the mob. We know that. But they do their backgrounds. The same with these street police officers who are buying in these drug areas. After a while, they're going to stop talking. They also have attorneys out there whose job, and I know the cartel did that, to find out how did this investigation come about? Who searched for this? Who were these? Uh, how did you get to my client? Was there an informant? And then they try to identify the informant. Well, on the street level, it could be different. They're going to talk about, yeah, this guy, you know, you know, so what is your exposure time? How much time can you do undercover in a particular group of individuals or in a neighborhood? Probably not long. So your window is going to shut down. I was able to move. I went from Florida. I did Chicago. I did Miami. I did Atlantic City. I did Newark. So I, I was always, you know, moving. But if you're in a police department, you're kind of limited to an area, unless, of course, you're working in a task force with ATF, FBI, or DEA. So also a word of caution is don't expose yourself and keep in mind how read how the affidavits and the complaint warrants, what does it say about you? Because just like you are making a case, these bad guys are out there trying to identify who you are. And hopefully, and if it's an organization, how they will never fall again to this particular technique. It's really interesting. One of the things, and, and the reason why I brought up like the different agencies was like you had said, there, there could be officers or uh, groups in smaller departments. Um, and you know, they may not have the resources that these larger federal agencies do. If, if there's an officer in one of these agencies to where do they go to get, you know, information, you know, the FBI has, has people like yourself, people that have done this for their entire careers some places don't have that. Where do those people go? Or is there a resource for them to go and, and actually get that, that tradecraft knowledge that we had spoken about earlier so that they, they have the information that they need? Do they just go to their, their, the, whatever, whoever the representative is for those uh, agencies as whatever the closest one is to them? Like where, where should they go? Well, in the FBI, one of the things that they mandate, and I went to the old school when there was no certification 
you just were picked and you did on the cover. Okay, now that's morphed into anybody who's assigned at a task force, either as an agent or a police officer, and they want to do undercover work, they have to go to the certification in Quantico, Virginia. So they have to be certified as undercover operatives before they go on to work any undercover case. Now, I don't know how that works with ATF. I don't know how that works with DEA. I am a believer that... A person who works undercover, whether you are a police officer or whatever, that you need to go to some kind of training and you need to also have some kind of undercover coordinator who runs, if, the, if a very busy department with a lot of undercover, who's aware of undercover cases going on, what is happening in update, and also be on the lookout for me. Like I want an undercover coordinator to say, hey, this guy is spread to thin. He, you got him in four different operations. Well, even though I did that, you know, I, I was, I knew the UC coordinator and he took care of me, you know, but other people say, no, he's too much. He can't do that. Or he just finishes undercover work. Now he's got to do his preparation with the United States attorney. So we have that in the FBI. I recommend everyone. Now, if you have an undercover officer who's working the streets and he doesn't have anybody who is either an undercover and I'm not talking about a commander or his captain or his lieutenant, because they're realistically, you want somebody whose job is to look after the undercover, because there's been a lot of horror stories of undercovers. Okay, there have been guys who have finished undercover operations and gone back to their horns. There have been guys who have break up with their marriage. There have been guys who have been caught shoplifted. There have been guys with alcohol problems. There have been all kinds of problems with undercover. So who's looking out after those guys? So an undercover coordinator needs to look at the undercover operation itself to make sure it's safe and that nobody's sending an undercover, which is this uh, uh, one of us, into harm's way just to go make a case. Uh, so I, I always look at this that, um, uh, but unfortunately, if you're working undercover in the street, you can't contact the FBI and say, hey, listen, we have what they call a safeguard unit in the FBI. And what they do is after each operation, before and after, you undergo a psychological. I think that's something that should be done by everyone, whether they should contract a psychologist to talk to the individual, see what their state of mind is. Because you got to realize it's true what they say, it's Stockholm Syndrome out there. There's a lot of guys who... They start like, wow, man, these guys with the bikers, they're not bad after all. They're just a bunch of guys drinking beer and raising hell. Oh, really? Okay, well, what about, yeah, the organized crime. That, so you need to protect that entity that is this price procession that when you decide to put that on the cover in there before, during, and I think more importantly is the after. Because you want to make sure that that person does not go to the dark side. Because, you know, once I guarantee you, those who went to the dark side, they get fired immediately. So what does that say about the department? Like, okay, so I did this work for you. Now, you know, what's up? So now you don't even care about me. And look, and undercover work, I also learned that there's, I know my limitations. Okay, I have been asked to work undercover 
with um, pedophiles. I will not work with pedophiles, okay? Simply, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to work anything to do with internet porn. That's just not my style, okay? I can't, although I'm repulsed by it, and I wish the worst for these individuals, I cannot see that. But I know that. I know that. Now, are you a young undercover who's trying to be impressionable and you just jump? And that's going to have side effects on you? Or what about the individual like with me? I've said, look, we want you to pose as a Wall Street guy. Are you kidding me? I don't look like a Wall Street. I don't know anything about accounting. I don't know anything about marketing. So I don't. I know what I can do and cannot do. But I've also witnessed guys who say, yeah, I'll do that. What do you mean you'll do that? What do you know about that? Like, yeah, I'll go with you to uh, go talk with these organized crime guys or these drug traffickers, and you're walking around with white socks, black shoes, and you got a side holster. You look like a cop. You, you know, you have to understand your strengths and your weaknesses, and that's a rare person that does that. And guys like who've done this for a long time, those are the guys that you know are the – I wasn't – I know guys who are – you see coordinators who cherry pick their cases. The rest of us, we never cherry pick our case. Nothing came to our desk and say, yeah, you got an opportunity to go to Europe and do this. Oh, yeah, that sounds like a good case. I'm on that. No, people came to us and they're the ones who said, Jack, I, I, I would like you to, to, to work this case and all this. I heard about this and all. That's how an undercover gets the case. We don't cherry pick the easy cases that are going to be slam uh, home runs. We make them into home runs. You know, what we got is we got a bunt. And then from bunt to the beginning, we grow it because that's the nature of the case. You make it bigger. You work small and you go up this ladder until you can't go anymore. And I write this in my book. I was so frustrated that in my particular case, we're working the ladder, the Mark case, and for no reason, it was terminated. So these are things that, and what do I do? I just moved along. I was fortunate. I was working other cases. But again, you know, you have to, don't be quick at the draw and say, I'm going to jump and work on the cover because you think of yourself, you're going to be driving a sports. Yeah, I've driven the best cars. Yeah, I've had the Rolex watches. I had the bankroll, the money, the big wad of money. I've had all of that, right? beautiful apartments, beautiful cars, you name it, fly first class, do this. But hey, it doesn't mean anything because all of that stuff, it's not yours, it's temporary. And the thing is, is take a case that you feel safe and consult with your wife and your partner. Don't tell them the, the specifics of the case, but just say, hi, I'm gonna be working a case that I'm gonna be out for a long time and I'll try to make it at home. Do I have your support? I always give my wife praise. My wife, who came from a police family, she, uh, a New York City detective was there. She knew. I says, I'm going to be dark in this. I may not make certain events. I may not be able. She goes, look, I know this is what makes you happy. Uh, just promise me you're going to be safe. And, and it wasn't. I didn't have her in my head, living in my head, telling me, oh, you missed your daughter's birthday. Oh, how dare you miss it? You're going to show up for a couple of hours? And where are you? You haven't been around. We haven't seen you. Because that affects you. You need a clear. It's bad enough having to deal with the bad guys and bad enough to having to deal with the administration of the case. Now you got to worry about a home life. 
So your home life got to be in sync with what you're doing. If your wife's going to give you grief, guess what? It ain't worth it. There's no case out there work. If your wife's not backing you up or your spouse is not backing you up, my advice, let it go. Move on to something uh, and do it. Again, we're not going to reveal the information to our spouses, but we are going to be honest and say, look, it's going to require a lot of time. It's going to require me going working late at night, coming all hours. I may have to have an apartment. I may not be able to come here. Okay, well, your wife will know right away either yes or hell no. It's one of the two. <laughs> I, know, I know what the answer on my end would be. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, Mike said, okay, maybe she was tired of me. But she understood. So I always give her praise because, and I'm sure a lot of the other undercovers, because I knew when I went out there and it's Christmas time or it's Thanksgiving, I'm sitting with some damn gangster. I want nothing to do with it or I'm missing my daughter's recital. Not because I want to uh, do it, but I'm working that I'm not going to get a brash of shit when I get home. I think that's a fantastic point and, and topic to, to leave this on for today because I think that's really important that we drive that home is that at the end of the day, your mental health doesn't matter if you're an, an undercover or if you're just a regular patrol officer. You, your mental health is, is the most important thing in keeping those, your family um, safe and together is, is paramount. So I think that's a fantastic place to leave it. I do, however, want to have you back on the show because I'm really interested to talk about something we didn't even get to talk about, which are, is building out RICO cases, um, which I think is really fascinating. And I'd love to, to do a show about that and, and to get more into talking about the, the crime families and things like that in New York and, and all those types of cases. So if you'll, uh, if you'll honor me by having back on, uh, coming back on the show, man, I'd be more than happy to have you. Adam, you were vouched by a dear friend in Jay Dobbins. Uh, any friend of him is a brother of mine. Thanks, man. I really appreciate that. If somebody wants to get a hold of you, where's the, where's the best place to, to reach out and find you? Listen, best way to get a hold of me is through LinkedIn. I'm, the, I'm under my true name, which is Joaquin, J-O-A-Q-U-I-N, Jack Garcia. And look, that goes to everyone. If there's a if there's an undercover out there and they're working and they're having a difficult time or something, they need somebody to talk to or they need somebody to maybe advise them in any kind of way, you know, uh, I would definitely do that. And of course, uh, you know, that I, I just, uh, you know, I, I just don't want anyone hurt or uh, be put in a situation where they can't reach out. And the worst thing that could happen, and there've been horror stories where some undercovers have, been, have gotten nowhere with their own and had reached out to the bad guys and it was the bad guys that helped them. And then when it came time to try and the guy goes, the undercover said, how am I going to put these people away? They, they, they helped me through a bad time. So again, if, if you feel you can't talk to anyone, they could drop me a, a note. Um, I gladly talk to them on the phone or whatever they need. Uh, um, you know, uh, it's... You know, and I hope the, the police departments do create some kind of undercover coordinator to make sure that uh, uh, proper advice before, during, and after is provided to all those uh, undercovers who put their life at risk every day. I love it. I love it, man. Thank you so much for joining me, and I'm excited to have you back on the show. So we'll talk again very soon. Thank you, brother. All the best to you. 
All right, that wraps up another episode here on Tactical Breakdown. If you like what you're hearing, if you're enjoying the content and finding it actionable and useful, consider subscribing to the podcast. You're going to stay up to date on all of the current events with law enforcement training around the world. And if you haven't already heard about the International Law Enforcement Training Summit, you need to jump over to iletsummit.com. Check that out. The live version is done and gone. That took place in July 2020. But you have the ability to get lifetime access to all of the training that's been developed for a very, very, very low price. Make sure to use the promo code BREAKDOWN to save even more. Check that out at ILETSummit.com. Thanks again for being here with us at the Tactical Breakdown. And until next time, stay safe. Produced and distributed by the Sound Off Media Company.